Welcome to Piecemeal, a monthly Emily program podcast where we put it all together for you. Piecemeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. I'm your host, Claire Holtz, and on today's episode, we are talking to Jennifer Nelson. Jen is a site director at the Emily program with a background of working in residential mental health facilities, treating severe and persistent illnesses. Jen has experience treating eating disorders, substance abuse issues, and multiple types of trauma. Hi, Jen, and welcome to Piecemeal. Hi, Claire. Thank you for having me. Yeah, definitely. We're excited to have you on the show. I am just going to start off by asking what led you to a career in the eating disorder field? Yeah, so um, I had heard about the EMILY program about five years before I started working here, and so it's always been something that's been in the back of my mind. Um, But through my work with um, severe and persistent mental illness and the other facilities that I've worked in, um, women's issues have always been something that's been really important to me, and so um, particularly body image. And so not that men don't suffer from eating disorders as well, but it is primarily um, a women's um, issue. And so I have always been interested in empowering women and Um, making us feel really just confident and comfortable in our own skin. So when did you first learn about what eating disorders were? I know for me, I knew sort of in high school, I got more exposure to it in college. And obviously now I work at the Emily program, so I have tons of knowledge about it. But I think before working for the Emily program, I had a lot of myths myself and I just didn't quite understand what it was. Do you remember the first time you really could say, oh, I know what eating disorders are? Yeah, I can actually say I know I knew what eating disorders really were when I first started working here, to be honest. Um, and, and not to say that I didn't um, have eating disorders in my own life. I think that I've always been somebody who's um, fought against the norm. Uh, the, the food philosophy of the EMILY program is that all foods fit, and this has really been a food philosophy of my own. And, you know, if my friends were talking about dieting or breaking up with sugar or whatever um, kind of weird or goofy ideas they might have had about food, that was always something that I challenged. Um, so when I came to the Emily program is when I really learned about eating disorders. And then as, as you mentioned, you know, I was able to look back and say, oh, I can see where this person or that person in my own life was probably suffering from an eating disorder. I think a lot of people don't actually know what eating disorders are still to this day. There's a ton of misconceptions out there about what they are, who has them, can they be cured? But I don't want to talk about the misconceptions today. I want to talk about the facts. So starting at the most basic level, what is an eating disorder and what types are there? Yeah, so an eating disorder at the most basic level is an over-evaluation of food, weight, and shape. Um, so the, the different types of eating disorders that there are is anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, um, binge eating disorder, and RFED. And then there's also the other categories where you're suffering from an eating disorder, but it doesn't quite fit into any of those categories. And so it's going to be an unspecified. And is that, I believe it goes by now, OSFED, O-S-F-E-D, Other Specified Feeding and Eating Disorder? That's correct. Perfect. And that used to have another categorization, and it just got relabeled recently. So right now, if you see OSFED, just know that those are the eating disorders that don't fall into the other categories. Do you have examples of any of those? Yeah, so maybe um, you're restricting your calorie intake, but you're at a normal weight. And so your um, your BMI is kind of in that normal weight range. And so that would maybe be something that would fall into that category. Or the frequency of um, the disordered eating that you're experiencing is maybe less um, frequent than we would see in some of those other categories, or potentially not been at present for as long as the other categories are are looking for. 
So I think the first point you mentioned of having anorexia but still maintaining a normal BMI or a normal quote-unquote weight range, I think that's really important because I feel like there is a myth out there that anorexia can only exist if a person is incredibly thin. Mm -hmm. That's not the case. You can still have anorexia and maintain a normal weight. So I think it's important that we start breaking down that myth especially because it's one that dispels a lot of people from getting treatment. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think one of the biggest myths about anorexia, um, bulimia, and binge eating disorder is that you can look at somebody and know that they have an eating disorder, and that is just not true. Yeah, I agree with that. And we hear that a lot today, too. And I think there's a lot of weight stigma and weight bias, sometimes in the medical professions. So for example, I've heard stories of clients here that have seen a doctor, and the doctor says, well, no, you can't have an eating disorder. You can't have anorexia. You can't have bulimia because you are maintaining this normal BMI, you look healthy, whatever that means. And I think it's really important for us working for the EMILY program in a treatment center is to start educating people and saying that eating disorders don't have a size, they don't have a shape, they don't have a weight. They can affect all people. It's not something that just occurs because you have a lower weight or occurs because you're trying to be thin. Eating disorders have a ton of causes, they have a ton of representations, and they're not just kind of short into all these thin individuals which is a great point of bringing up one of the myths is that eating disorders only affect thin teenage girls. Do you know where that myth started? You know, I don't know exactly where that myth started, but I do know that um, it, the that girls ages 10 to 24 are 10 times more likely to develop an eating disorder. And now um, we really take a biopsychosocial model to our approach when talking about how do we develop an eating disorder. And I wish that I had a good answer for you, but the, the real answer is we don't know. But when we're talking about the biological factors is we do know that when you are going through hormonal changes, so puberty, um, that, that time period, 10 to 24, is really a vulnerable time for people to develop eating disorders because their body is really going through these monumental changes. But that's also not to say that menopause is another um, time period when people really experience the um, effects of eating disorders. And the fastest growing population right now is middle-aged women um, with binge eating disorder. Is that a common myth you guys see in folks that come into the Emily program? Are there people coming in and saying, well, I'm too old to have an eating disorder. I'm not thin enough to have an eating disorder. How do you deal with that? It's absolutely a fear that we um, see with our clients, and I think that that's really um, a huge barrier that we have to break down in that initial session of you're not the only one, and, and um, this really is a place for anybody, any age. Um, I think that uh, one of the ways that we talk with the clients is that we look at um, their kind of lifetime and say, you know, eating disorders start really subtly and eating disorders start really slowly. And so it's not necessarily that you wake up one day and it's like, oh, here you go, I have this eating disorder. It really is this slow progression um, that that really manifests over time. And so sometimes people come in and it's, um, when we look sort of at that timeline, we can see that they've been, maybe been suffering for 20, 30, 40 years before they actually get treatment. I think it's really important to know that so many people do wait that long to get treatment, or even some people go their whole lives without getting treatment. I think there's a lot of stigma and shame behind getting treatment. How does that play a role into the fact that folks finally come in the office? And I'm sure they're sitting there and they have all the misconceptions in their head. I'm sure to some degree they feel embarrassment. It's a hard step to get treatment. How do you recommend that those folks start the first conversation? Let's say they make a call to the EMILY program or they have an eating disorder assessment and they're feeling nervous and uncomfortable. What should they expect? 
Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. And I think that kind of to go back and talk about how does somebody know? Well, you might not know. And I think that that's a really common experience of our clients saying, I didn't I knew there was something wrong, but I didn't know what it was. I didn't even know if I was going to um, have a diagnosis. And so I think if you're even questioning it, you should always make the call. So the process of that would be, um, you know, picking up the phone and calling um, our main line that would get you to any um, any person on the other end will, will answer. And so um, you, you make that initial call. And they're just going to do a quick 10 to 15 minute phone screen with you and just ask some simple questions like, um, you know, tell me about your eating patterns. Tell me about um, the frequency of what you're experiencing. And from there, they will schedule you with a um, intake provider. And we really try to break down any barrier to care so we can get you into treatment within, or excuse me, into a um, assessment within 48 hours of that initial phone call. So from there, you would see an intake provider and um, they would do an assessment. It's a really a dynamic assessment to um, weed out what type of eating disorder might you have um, or not. And then um, right in that initial session, we're going to make our recommendations. So we're going to try to get you set up with the treatment team as quickly as possible. And again, breaking down any barrier to care so that we can get you the fastest treatment um, that fits your needs. So what we just learned is that eating disorders can affect anyone. That's regardless of gender, age, race, any other demographic categorization. So we know this and we know that 30 million people in the United States suffer from an eating disorder. So knowing that, it's likely that we do know someone that has an eating disorder or that we ourselves do. Are there any warning signs that we should look for in ourselves or in others if we're concerned about our eating and food behaviors? Yeah, so if you're noticing anybody who has dramatic weight loss or weight gain, frequently talking about food, weight, and shape, rapid or persistent decline in, in, or an increase in intake, excessive or compulsive exercise, purging, restricting, binge eating, or compulsive eating, if they're abusing diet pills, laxatives, diuretics, or even if they're having any um, like denial about their eating problems or um, how they're interacting with food despite you being concerned about them, if they're eating in secret or hiding their food, if they're really resisting um, engaging in meals with you or they used to love going out to eat or um, liked cooking with you and all of a sudden they don't want to do those activities anymore. And then I think really certainly medical complications. So um, eating disorders don't have necessarily overt medical complications. They're going to be really kind of like these silent symptoms or things that you might deal with on a random day. But if they're really kind of persistent or you're really worried about that person, um, I think menstrual irregularities is something that um, is, is a really common one. And that can affect any any woman who really kind of is in that process, but we, we really kind of look at this for teens as well, if they maybe haven't developed um, menses when they should have, or if it's abruptly stopped. Um, and then certainly dizziness, fainting, bruising of the skin, dry um, hair or dry skin itself, leg cramps, any kind of like diarrhea, constipation, and then even dental problems. Are those symptoms the same for men with eating disorders or the, are those symptoms women specific? They often present present the same, and I think, again, as we stated earlier, you can't look at somebody and know that they're suffering from an eating disorder, and a lot of times, um, like I said, these symptoms might be silent, so somebody might just be like, I have heartburn, and we're just going to say, oh, okay, take a Tums, but it's really if that heartburn is persistent and chronic that we might want them to take a look at that a little bit more closely. So you listed a lot of symptoms of eating disorders. Do you have to have all of the symptoms, most of the symptoms? How exactly does it become categorized as an eating disorder? Do you need two out of 10 symptoms, three out of 10? How does that work? 
That's a really great question. Somebody might experience all of these symptoms, and other times somebody's going to experience no symptoms and actually be quite medically compromised or really quite ill. Um, I think that the that the very beginning stages of an eating disorder might be very subtle, and so it might just be um, somebody expressing kind of pop culture diet mentality of, oh, I think I'm going to try so-and-so fad diet. And that might be the very first signs of their eating disorder, all the way to somebody who is um, experiencing chest pain, or maybe they're not experiencing any kind of symptoms, but they're at an increased risk for a heart attack or even a stroke. So what you're saying is I can have an eating disorder and I can have no symptoms. I can also have an eating disorder and I can have all of the symptoms. Absolutely. And I think that's what makes eating disorders one of the scariest diseases out there. And so let's say we're noticing eating disorder signs and symptoms in ourselves. What should we do to promote healing from that or recovery? Should we do anything if we only notice small amounts of eating disorder behaviors? What if we're just doing one thing and it's not that weird, but we're like sort of uncomfortable about it? Is that something we should just let go? Can we fix, quote unquote, fix this ourselves, or should we be reaching out? You should absolutely reach out. If you're feeling that kind of twinge of something about this feels off or something about this feels different, I would certainly reach out. Your medical provider is going to be a really great place to start, especially if you're having some of those um, medical symptoms that we talked about or a trusted person in your life. You can talk about that, um, that difference in eating that you're noticing or even excessive exercise. So there's a few different folks in our lives that would be able to recognize an eating disorder. There's providers, so for example, our primary care provider or doctor. There's a dentist in our life. There's friends. There's families. I'd like to break down the best approach for each of these categories to ask someone about their eating habits. So let's start with medical professionals. Do you have any advice for a doctor that has been seeing a patient regularly and has noticed a change in weight or has noticed them talking about food differently? Is there an easy way for them to bring it up or is it just kind of you have to do it? That's a really great question. And I think that um, although our doctors are really kind of the people at the forefront, not many doctors actually have specific training in eating disorders. So I think it really is on the person um, or the patient to to let their doctor know, hey, I'm experiencing something different here and it doesn't feel um, okay or I'm scared about it. And if the doctor um, just sort of brushes it off, then being persistent and saying, no, this really feels scary to me or this really feels abnormal to me. um, and, And hopefully your doctor will be be able to listen and, and then talking about these symptoms that although we might think, oh, it's it's winter and we live in Minnesota, so of course my hair is more dry and brittle, that might be a warning sign to um, that is reflecting your eating habits. And so really talking with your doctor and saying, no, this isn't just Minnesota winter. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. And for doctors too, I think it's hard sometimes to admit that we don't have all the answers. But it's totally okay if you're a provider and you don't have a lot of experience with eating disorders to refer your patient. I think the best thing you can do is to get them the help and the specialized care that they need. That's better than having them wait and having it go on and having it possibly get worse. So I think it's really important that as soon as you start noticing those facts, to bring it up with the client just to let them know, hey, here's what I'm noticing. It's a little concerning. Do you have any feelings about this? And then to say, you know, if you want treatment or if you want to start recovery or if you need any help with that, here's some great places that do specialize in that treatment. And then for family members, so if a family member is concerned about another family member, let's say if a mom is afraid that her daughter is acting differently around food and may have eating disorder problems, what's the best way for that parent to approach the child? 
That's a really great question. I think it's probably one of the biggest fears that our support people have um, is that they're afraid that if they bring something up that their loved one or their um, their acquaintance is going to get mad at them or that it's going to, um, the conversation's going to go in a way that they don't expect or aren't prepared for. But I think that, um, yes, initially people might feel defensive if people are asking questions about what they're eating or how they're eating, but ultimately you could save that person's life. You know, um, eating disorders are a deadly disease, and so it, it really could be the conversation that changes somebody's life. So what I would recommend to loved ones is just ask. Um, I, I think that what the the person suffering from the eating disorder might feel judgment or shame about the conversation and so for the support people I would just um, encourage a gentle easy manner um, and just ask curious questions not blaming questions but you know hey I I I noticed this and I'm worried about you. I would like to talk to you about what I'm seeing. Um, So those just really kind of gentle leading questions and and opening that conversation up to, I'm really worried about what I'm seeing or I'm noticing this change in you. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? That might allow the conversation to go a little bit easier than it might if if you come in with an attacking manner or um, accusations. But but what I really encourage is just asking the questions. If people are really suffering, um, they're going to probably want to talk about it and they might be scared and they might be resistant to getting treatment. However, they're likely to come in and get the support that they need if you open up the dialogue. I think those are great lines for having that first conversation as a support person is to make sure you bring it up to the person to use a lot of I statements I noticed this I'm concerned not saying you don't do this you don't do that you stopped eating this I think the you 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 statements can sound really blamey and have an unintended effect all we're really trying to communicate as support people is that we have a concern and that we want them to know we're there I mean, I've been there, I've had this conversation with people, it's awkward, but you're gonna get through it, it's gonna be for the best. Oftentimes, that friend or that support person, their relationship, it might change. It might be a little bit tense for days, it might be uncomfortable, but you're gonna get through it. I mean, your friends, your family, you're doing this because you care about each other, and the best thing that's gonna come of it is the person you're concerned about, they can get treatment and they can start recovery. So really that process of healing, it's completely worth a few days of awkwardness or feeling nervous about having the conversation. I think what's important is to just have the conversation. I agree with that. I think that one of the things that um, might surprise people is that oftentimes people who are suffering from eating disorders don't realize that their behavior or that their eating pattern is, is actually disruptive. They they think that whatever they're doing is normal or is really a useful um, way of interacting with food. Um, so sometimes you know, you can also talk about the other things that come. I like to say the eating disorder and its posse. Um, So, you know, oftentimes with an eating disorder, we're going to see things like perfectionism. We're going to see things like anxiety or depression. And so those might also be things that you can note of of change. So telling that loved one or that friend, you know, I'm I'm also noticing that you're having a really hard time um, with school. Um, You seem to be really anxious about that. Or I noticed that you are having a really hard time getting out of bed. Let's talk about these things. And so then it's not necessarily um, about one thing in particular, but just this overarching, I'm worried about you and I'm here to support you. The conversation isn't about, quote unquote, making them do what you want them to do. It's about helping them to live their life to the fullest. So if they want treatment, you should support them. If they're going to consider treatment and they're looking into places, you can offer to help with that process. 
but we try to avoid being pushy or being really abrasive or just never letting the conversation die. I think it's important to have a breather within that conversation to bring it up one time and say, look, if you want to talk to me about this whenever, please come to me. You could have the conversation again in a week. You could have it again in a few weeks. But there also has to be something else to your friendship other than you just saying, look, you need help. Look, you need treatment. Look, you need X, Y, and Z. I think it's important to still make the person feel like they have autonomy over their choices. But rather than being alone in that choice, that they have someone, a friend, a family member to rely on. Absolutely. One of the things that's important to us at the Emily program is that we're going to walk with the clients in their journey. And so that's going to probably take two steps forward, one step back, a little bit to the right, a little bit to the left. You know, it's going to be the unexpected. And so I think as a support person, being willing and prepared to walk with that client in or that, excuse me, loved one in whatever way they need to go. Yeah, I think that's another great point. Treatment, recovery, it's going to look different for every single person. Even at the Emily program, it looks different for every single person here. Recovery, it's not really a blueprint. It's not really, here's the one way you're going to do it. Recovery is different for everyone, and that's okay. I think whatever each person needs to experience healing, that's perfectly right for them. So now, talking about ourselves, I think sometimes folks can recognize eating disorder behavior and symptoms in themselves and not know what to do. What's the best thing that someone who's afraid they themselves might have an eating disorder can do? I think the first thing that they can do is breathe. Um, know that there's going to be help out there for them. And so that might be reaching out to somebody that you trust and saying, I need help. Can you help me find the tools or resources? Or like we mentioned earlier, picking up the phone and just calling and talking to one of the intake people and saying, I I don't know if this is an eating disorder. I feel like this might be um, something different or, you know, I, I feel out of control, whatever your emotion or your experience is, just just opening up that dialogue um, and breathing. It doesn't, it's not going to get fixed or it's not going to get cured in one day. And so knowing that it's going to be a process and that you don't have to have all the answers, you don't have to know exactly what to do, but just reaching out and opening up that conversation. Yeah, I love the commentary that it's a process and that you're not going to immediately wake up one day and just be free of your eating disorder because you didn't wake up one day and just immediately get an eating disorder. Eating disorders are caused by a variety of situations, factors. We'll be covering that in a later episode about the neurobiology of eating disorders, so we don't want to get into that too much today. But we do want you to know that eating disorders, you don't get them because you did X or you don't get them because you did Y. You're not deserving of an eating disorder. Much like any other illness, it can just happen. And it happens to certain people more often than others, but it does happen to everyone. And everyone's at risk for an eating disorder, especially if you live in today's society. Out here, I mean, we hear tons of body messaging all the time. There's advertisements promoting a certain type of body. There's TV, there's media saying, this is in, this is out. So I think it makes sense that we all have body image issues, but also it's important to realize that to some degree those aren't healthy and they're not helping us live a full and rounded life. So again, if we're noticing these symptoms in ourselves, what if we're thinking, okay, I have all these eating disorder symptoms and behaviors that I'm engaging in, but I'm not unhappy about it. I feel pretty comfortable with them. So do I need treatment? That's a really great question. I think that if... And I think, as I noted earlier, sometimes people come in with an eating disorder and they don't realize that their eating is so disordered or that it is causing such problems. So if you're 
experiencing feedback from those in your life that um, I'm worried about you or the, the way in which you're interacting with your food feels scary or disruptive, that might be some of the ways to start evaluating your own interaction with food. You know, I feel okay with this, but I'm noticing um, that my X person in my life is really dis- disturbed by it. And so just kind of opening up those questions of evaluation, I think could be really helpful. Um, and, and it's not like if you come into the EMILY program, we're going to say everything that you're doing is wrong and you need to stop doing that. And we're taking away um, all of the things that you've been doing and we're going to have you do it this way. That's, that is absolutely not treatment here. Um, and so I think that that's also an important thing to remember is that we want you to have a relationship with food that feels comfortable and safe for you. And so that might mean how others perceive your your interaction with food. Even if you're okay or comfortable with the way that you're interacting with food, we also want the people that are in your life to also feel comfortable with that too. Yeah, I love the idea that we want it to be happy and healthy for you. It can look different on everyone. The most important thing though is that we get you to a point or that you get yourself to a point in recovery where you feel comfortable with how you're behaving and how you're handling yourself around food and you're comfortable with what people are seeing, you're comfortable with what you're doing when people aren't seeing. I think it's just important to really get to that safe space with food where you can be comfortable around it as opposed to a lot of the times I think people with eating disorders, you don't feel comfortable around food. You can be comfortable with your eating disorder and uncomfortable with food. Those are two totally separate things and in recovery we try and make you comfortable with food to get you to a point where you no longer are in the worst place of your eating disorder, but you're moving towards healing. One of the things that we really strive for is just to make food, food. So if food is feeling like something other than food or fuel for your body, that might be a sign that I need to evaluate my interaction with food or my relationship with food and just explore why it's going beyond the boundary of fuel. Yeah, I love that. I know right now there's all this talk in the eating disorder field and in diet culture itself of saying, you know, food is just food. Food's not good or bad. A donut isn't going to make you a bad person. Eating, you know, a snap pea, that's not going to make you a good person. I think it's really important to remember that all food has value. Even food that we see as quote-unquote non-nutritional, it still does have nutritional value. There's still value for that food in your life. One of our dietitians here, Hilmar Wagner, he's actually going to be on next month's episode. So the story he tells is he'll say, on my birthday, I really want carrot cake, and that's okay. For my birthday, I'm going to have the cake, and on that day, it totally fits in my life, and that's great, and I'm comfortable with that. But then he says the next morning for breakfast or lunch, I might not want the carrot cake. I might just want a carrot, and that's equally as okay. Eating the carrot or the carrot cake, it doesn't make him a better person. It doesn't make him a worse person. It doesn't change who he is. And I think right now our society has this huge idea that certain foods are good and certain foods are bad and there's all these diets happening saying no sugar, no carbs, no this, no that. But I think the important thing to realize is that all foods should be okay in your life. We shouldn't fear food. We shouldn't have fear foods. We shouldn't be afraid of going out to eat. We just need to be comfortable with the choices we're making and realize that food doesn't dictate who we are as a person. 
Yeah, there's a lot of myths out there. And, um, you know, really, it kind of comes down to that balance, variety and moderation. And, you know, I'm not a dietitian, but I do know um, from being here and being around um, this culture is that your body doesn't know the difference. So with that example of the carrot cake or the carrot, your body doesn't know that it's in the form of a cake or if it's in the form of a carrot. It just knows that this is food and it's going to break it down however it needs to break it down and it's going to use it the way that it needs to use it. So if you want to eat the cake, great. And if you want to eat the carrot, great. (laughs) I do love that story from Hilmar. Another thing I just want to circle back to that I'm not sure that we stated explicitly earlier in this episode is that folks who identify as non-normative, they still are at risk for eating disorders. So anyone of the LGBTQIA plus community, those folks are equally as at risk for an eating disorder, if not more. A lot of the research does say that those individuals are more likely to develop an eating disorder. But I feel like we don't often talk about that. Do you have anything to say about that, Jen? Yeah, I do. I think that that's a really great point, just to reminding that eating disorders can affect any person and they don't discriminate for any reason. But I think that anytime that you add in a, um, a factor of needing an additional coping skill for whatever it might be, so that might be um, how you identify, that might be a trauma, that might be anxiety, whatever it is, that the eating disorder is actually a coping skill. Um, at one point, the eating disorder was something that you did or you engaged in because it felt soothing or it felt safe. And then at this point, it's actually turned on you and now it's starting to hurt you or harm you and disrupt your life. And so um, it's just a really unhelpful coping skill for whatever you're dealing with. So I think that anytime that there is, again, a vulnerability in your life and it's a skill that you've used to have control or an outlet or whatever that might have been the function or the purpose of your eating disorder, um, what we really want to do is come in and help you have new tools. We want to give you a whole toolbox of things that you can pull from and you can use for whatever circumstance or experience that you might face in the future so you can feel better prepared to deal with that rather than using food as your coping skill. So you're a site director at the Emily program, which means you see all types of folks come in and out of the location that you work at. So we're saying all of these things. We're saying, look, everyone can get an eating disorder. It's not size specific. It's not gender specific. But do you really see that at your location? Do you see different types of folks receiving treatment from us? Or is it just you know, the one stereotypical image? Is your site all younger women? What does your site actually look like? That's a really great question. Um, Our site's actually really evolving. um, And so I think that as we are expanding our programming and we're expanding the services that we offer, we are seeing more of a variety of individuals walking through our doors. And so we really do see anyone and everyone. Um, We're seeing all diagnoses come in. Um, and, And so it really is a dynamic culture of people coming together for this treatment. One of the things that I think might be useful for people to know is that our treatment really takes an individualized approach. And so um, if people are coming in with specific cultural needs, um, even specific dietary needs um, or um, specific accommodations, we are going to try to make that happen whenever or however possible. And so it really is an individualized set of treatment for each person, even if you are in a group setting um, or if that's in an individual session with a therapist or a dietitian. Just one last thing, what's your favorite part of being a site director? 
That's a really good question. <laughs> I gotta, I've gotta think about that. Um, I, I think one of my favorite things about being a site director is being part of the process of change. It's one of the things that I love about working for the Emily program is that I think we try to be leaders in the industry and we're going to ever evolve um, how we are delivering our services, whether that be clinical treatment or even um, how people are greeted at the front desk, you know, really kind of touching all those points of care. Um, I, I think that's a really special thing to be part of, and I like that process of brainstorming, hearing client feedback, hearing the feedback from the clinicians or the people who are working in our offices of um, this treatment or that treatment or this intervention or that intervention was really useful. And so I, I really think that evolution is a special thing to be part of. I love that. I love the fact that we can grow professionally here as doctors, therapists, nurses, site directors, whatever our position might be. But I love the fact that we're evolving as a company. I don't think every organization can say that. And I think it's part of what makes us special. That's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jen. Yes, thank you very much for having me. Piecemeal is an Emily program podcast with new episodes out the first Monday of every month. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, subscribe, or review our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you'd like to learn more about the EMILY program and what we do, you can visit emilyprogram.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at EMILY program. Piecemeal is hosted and edited by me, Claire Holtz, produced by Nancy Linden and myself, with music by Dan Forkey. If you have questions that you want answered on air, email us at podcast at emilyprogram.com. And as always, we want you to know that recovery from an eating disorder is possible.